But tonight we're going to be in Genesis 6, verses 1 through 8, talking about the days of Noah. Now Genesis 6, it's the story of Noah, it's the story of the flood and how God tells him to build the big old boat, to build the ark. It's a story that is familiar to us, but it's a story that when you begin to study chapter 6, 7, 8, and 9, and begin to look at it in detail, you'll find out that there are a lot of parallels to our day. And so we're going to look at what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, verse 37 to 39. And before we get there, I want to say that the passage in Matthew 24, it's part of a longer section called the Olivet Discourse, which was a private message given by Jesus to His disciples on the Mount of Olives two or three days before He was crucified. The subject is the return of Jesus to the earth at the end of the age. And in order to help them understand that future event, Jesus draws a comparison with the days of Noah. Jesus is telling His disciples that the past is the key to the future. Jesus says, study the days of Noah because what happened in those days will happen again at the end of this age. And so look at Matthew 24, verse 37 through 39. Everything will be on your handout. It's not all going to be on the screen. It says, For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand. Some translations say they did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Jesus says the spiritual conditions of the pre-flood world will be replicated in the days preceding His return to the earth. And what do we find when we examine the world of Noah's day? You can simply write this phrase down in large letters. Business as usual. They were eating and drinking. There's nothing wrong with that. They were marrying and giving in marriage. There's nothing wrong with that. They were buying and selling and continuing in all the usual activities of human life. It was business as usual. Life was carrying on as it has always been. In Noah's day, he was a preacher of righteousness and he warned them of judgment. He warned them of a flood that was to come. And here's probably what they thought of Noah. He's crazy. He's ridiculous. He looks foolish. Up until that time, they'd never seen rain. They'd never seen a body of water. And here's Noah preaching a flood is coming. Here he is building this great big old boat. And they don't know what water is. But he's telling them that God's going to flood the earth. That God's going to send judgment. But they didn't pay him any mind. They didn't pay him any attention. But at last the day came when Noah entered the ark. And God shut the door. And what happened? The rains came, the flood came up. And I'm sure in that day when the rain began to hit them on the head and they began to felt the drops fall, they began to beat on the door. But it was too late. They had no time for God until God shut the door. And it was too late. That's the world of Noah's day. And I'm afraid there's coming another day that God's going to shut the door of grace. And it's going to be too late for people. Jesus said it's going to be that way again at His coming. And so tonight I want to give you five phrases that will help us grasp the meaning of Genesis chapter 6. 
And I believe as we look at these five phrases and we begin to understand this text and unpackage this text, we're going to see why God sent the flood. Have you ever wondered that? Why did God send the flood? Why did God decide to destroy humanity? But as we begin to look at why God sent the flood, we're also going to understand why God's going to judge this world again and why God's going to send judgment one more time. So the first thing to notice is we see an abuse of marriage. We see an abuse of marriage. Look at verse 1 and 2 of Genesis 6. Now it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. We see immediately in verse number 1, that there is an increase in population. And when there is an increase in population, there will be an increase in sin and wickedness. Look there at the verse of Scripture in Proverbs chapter 29, verse 16. It says, when the wicked increase, transgression increases. Think about that. When the wicked increase, transgression increases. Matthew Henry said this in his commentary. He said, the more sinners, the more sin. And the multitude of offenders emboldens men. Infectious diseases are most destructive in populous cities. And sin is a spreading leprosy. Sin and wickedness is increasing, but the greatest wickedness of that day, I believe, has something to do with marriage. I believe as the population began to multiply in Noah's day, something began to take place in marriage. Something sexually perverse began to take place, and God had enough that He said, I've got to deal with humanity's wickedness. Now before we consider the controversial aspects of these two verses, I want you to look at the last two phrases. It said the sons of God saw the daughters of men were beautiful. Literally, it says they were fair. They were good to look at. These were some good looking women. And they took wives for themselves whomever they chose. These marriages were made on the basis of nothing more than pure physical attraction. Now I believe that when you get married, you ought to be physically attracted to whomever you are getting married to. But listen, physical attraction alone should not be why you get married. But in this day, a man saw a woman and he said, Hey, I like her. She's beautiful. She's good looking. She's hot. I want her. She's mine. And he took her for himself. Forget wisdom, forget training, forget education or ability, forget character, forget dignity. Don't worry about personality. Don't worry about her family background. And certainly don't worry about godliness. Those things simply get in the way. In those days, marriage had become nothing more than the satisfaction of a sexual desire. Man sees woman, man wants woman, so man takes woman. Sounds like our day, doesn't it? But here's the lesson. Anytime we make a decision based on sight only, it leads to trouble because things aren't always as they appear. The old saying, never judge a book by its cover comes to mind. Sight will get you into trouble. Amen? Eve saw that the tree was good for food and pleasant to the eyes and ate the fruit and gave it to Adam. And guess what? Sin entered the world. 
Why did she eat? First of all, because it looked good. You know, the Bible talks about the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes. You know, sin looks attractive, doesn't it? Sin looks good. And that's why so often we give in to it because it looks pleasant to the eyes. In Genesis 13, Lot saw the well-ordered plain of Jordan. Abraham and Lot, their flocks have become too big and they have to separate and go their separate ways. Their herdsmen are fighting amongst themselves. And Abraham said to Lot, Hey, you choose. And Lot, he sees the well-watered plain of Jordan. He sees that it's luscious. He sees that it's green. He sees that it's beautiful. And he says, Hey, I'll take Jordan. And the Bible says he pitched his tent near Sodom and Gomorrah. And before long, he's living in Sodom and Gomorrah. And God sends fire and judges it. He made a decision based on what he saw. And next thing you know, he's vexing his righteous soul daily because he made a decision based on what he saw. Just because it looks good doesn't mean that it is good. Amen? John Trapp in his commentary said this, Beauty is a dangerous bait and lust is sharp-sighted. It is not safe gazing on a fair woman. How many have died of the wound in the eye? No mean, no one means hath so enriched hell as beautiful faces. Take heed our eyes, be not windows of wickedness and loopholes of lust. End of quote. Can I tell you what got David in trouble? He looked a little too long upon Bathsheba. You want to know what have made a many of men fall? They looked a little too long. Our eyes can get us into trouble. And that's what we see taking place. The sons of God are looking at the daughters of men and they're taking them any that they please. But the real question that we have to ask concerning these verses, who are the sons of God and who are the daughters of men? Who do these phrases refer to? Now, throughout history of biblical interpretation, there have been three main answers given to answer that question. They'll be on the screen. Letter A. First, Some suggest that this verse refers to the intermarriage of believers with unbelievers. In this view, the sons of God are the godly line of Seth, and the daughters of men represent women from the ungodly line of Cain. In favor of this view is the fact that the preceding chapters clearly show the development of two lines, the godly and the ungodly. We know Cain, he left the presence of God, And he started a society without God. He didn't want anything to do with God. He left his descendants away from God. And so we know that the Bible tells us there are two lines. There was a godly line that came through Seth and there was an ungodly line that came through Cain. And we also know that the Bible warns us that believers shouldn't marry unbelievers. It's always wrong. We shouldn't be unequally yoked. That's what the Bible tells us. Now, if two unbelievers get married and one becomes a Christian, they shouldn't divorce. But if you are a child of God and you decide to get married, you shouldn't go looking for an unbeliever. You should find somebody who loves God, follows God, and wants to go to heaven with you. Amen. You should find somebody who chases after God as much as you chase after God. Amen. The Bible warns us that for a believer to marry an unbeliever, it's going to lead to problems. It's going to lead to heartache. It's going to lead to trouble. So that's the first view. 
Secondly, letter B. Some scholars suggest that the phrase sons of God is a technical term from the ancient Near East that describes human rulers who were despots. We would call them big shots. We would call them the bigwigs today. These were the ancient tribal chieftains who were bullies and braggarts. The daughters of men would refer to the multiple wives and concubines who made up the earliest harems. This is a plausible view, but here's the thing. It depends on evidence from outside the Bible. I don't like going too much outside the Bible to try to find evidence to back up what the Bible says. I believe the Bible should be the best commentary on the Bible. Amen? But let us see. This is the third view. Scholars suggest that the sons of God refers to angels who rebelled against God. We would call them demons. They inhabited human bodies, married human women, and produced offspring. This is the oldest interpretation. Most Jewish scholars, Jewish historians, they hold to this view. Now on the surface you might say, Pastor, that sounds weird, that view seems strange, it's a little bizarre, but here's the thing, in my judgment, in my opinion, I believe that's what the passage is teaching. Now, let me say, if I didn't hold to this view, I would hold to the first view, the godly light and the ungodly light intermixing and intermingling. But I believe according to the Scripture and looking at the text and looking at the language, This is referring to fallen angels who possessed earthly men and they married earthly women and produced offspring. Let me explain. The term sons of God in the Old Testament and all of its other occurrences always refers to angels. No man in the Old Testament is ever referred to as a son of God. When you read Job and all the other occurrences, sons of God always refers to angels. And so, when you have a... There's what's called in the Bible the law of first mention. That means anytime something's mentioned for the first time, you have to take note of it. Because what it means there, it means other places in Scripture. So when you have sons of God, you have to look at other places at what it means. In Job, sons of God refers to angel. At other places in the Old Testament, sons of God, it means angels. So sons of God, I believe it refers to angels, fallen angels. We know Satan's already been kicked out of heaven. He showed up as the serpent talking to Eve. So Satan's already been kicked out of heaven. He embodied a snake and spoke to Eve. Am I making sense? We know, we know that demons want to inhabit bodies. That's how they operate. I also believe this interpretation fits well with Genesis 3.15, which emphasizes Satan's long war against the seed of the woman that will eventually produce the Messiah. There was going to be hostility between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Now think about this. What better way to destroy the coming Messiah than to corrupt the human race through the introduction of demonism. Think about that. What better way to try to stop the Messiah from coming than to corrupt the bloodline? Than to try to produce ungodly offspring? Here's what James Boyce said in his commentary. The Savior could not be born of a demon-possessed mother. So if Satan could succeed in infecting the entire race, the Deliverer could not come. End of quote. That's what Satan's trying to do. 
He's trying to stop the Messiah. He's trying to stop the, the, the Redeemer, the Deliverer from coming. He's trying to infect the bloodline. He knows that God promised a Messiah through the seed of the woman. But if He can somehow corrupt the seed, a Redeemer can't come and destroy Him. So for me, this is what makes sense of the text. It also helps us understand two difficult passages in the New Testament. Look at 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 and 5. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Notice how it links angels and the flood. Did you see it? And then look at Jude verse 6 and 7. And angels who did not keep their own abode, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these, that were these, that's referring back to the angels, just as the angels indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Both passages describe a very drastic judgment upon certain angels who not only sinned but abandoned their proper abode. Notice in the first passage the angels are mentioned first, then comes Noah and the flood. In Jude the phrase even as or just as joins the angels with the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And what was the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah? It was a gross immorality. It was sexual immorality. It was a perversion consisted of going after strange flesh. I believe that in the days before the flood, certain angels rebelled against God, entered human bodies in a form of demon possession, they took for themselves human wives, produced children through this union that turned out to be evil, violent men. Verse 4 talks about giants or the Nephilim, mighty men, men of renown. I believe that's what it's talking about. An ungodly offspring. Some kind of sexual perversion taking place that God says, I can't have it going on anymore. In the Gospels, we know that demons crave bodies to inhabit. And let me just say this. We see in the text there in Jude that He's put some in chains of darkness. That means that there are demons roaming around, but there's been some that have been chained until He finally puts them in the great bottomless pit. He put them in chains of darkness because of something perverse they did. Until He finally throws them in hell. They did something like Sodom and Gomorrah did is why He's already bound them. I believe it had something to do with Genesis chapter. Are you with me? But demons need a body to operate. If Satan and a third of the angels have already been kicked out of heaven and roaming this earth, and Satan showed up in the garden, they're looking for somebody to dwell in. 
And you might say, well, pastor, why would people of that day let a demon come live inside of them? Well, it's the same lie that Satan told, us, told Eve. You can be like God. Isn't that the lie that Satan wants to keep telling people? You can be like God. I mean, you think about Mark chapter 5 for a moment when the legion of demons was cast out of the Gadarene demoniac. They begged Jesus to be allowed to enter a herd of pigs. Why? Because they didn't want to be cast into the abyss. They wanted somewhere to go. They wanted a body to inhabit. And so since we know those things are possible, it shouldn't surprise us that a total rejection of God led to some kind of bizarre sexual sin and an outbreak of evil unprecedented in a world history. Because here's the thing, if it was simply the godly line of Seth and the ungodly line of Cain just intermarrying, why would God destroy that? I mean, I, I, I know that God's people are to be separated and holy, but why would that be so bad that God would say, I've got to destroy everybody? I believe something much more perverted was taking place. That's me. Something perverted sexually was happening that caused God to do away with civilization. And if you look at our world today, there are sexually perverse things taking place in our society. We have homosexuality and lesbianism and all kinds of other things taking place today. People cannot identify with the right sex and all kinds of things taking place today bestiality and all kinds of crazy things. And listen, that's nothing new. It's in the Bible. God warned against those things. And you might say, well, angels, preacher, really angels? Well, when Sodom and Gomorrah was about to be destroyed and the angels came to bring Lot out, the, the men of the city wanted to slip with the angels. God sent a flood in Noah's day. He sent fire and brimstone to Sodom and Gomorrah because of what was happening. And with everything happening in our world today, I don't believe it can be much longer until Jesus comes and God sends judgment. In fact, I heard one preacher say this one time, if God don't soon come and send judgment to our world, He's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. It can't go on much longer. There, there, there was an abuse of marriage. Something taking place with the sons of God, the daughters of men. Some kind of intermingling. Either fallen angels, taking women, or demon possessment. Something perverse taking place in marriage. But secondly, I want you to notice this in verse 3. We see an end to God's patience. Look at verse 3. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever. Man, that, that's... That'll strike fear. Because He also is flesh, or He's corrupt. Nevertheless, His days shall be 120 years. 
In light of the bizarre morality of the pre-flood world, it's not surprising that God's patience finally wore thin. I believe the 120 years here refers not to man's new lifespan. I believe it refers to the remaining years before the flood. I believe God's saying, you've got 120 years to change. I believe He's giving them 120 years to repent. They've got, they got 120 years to get right. You see, up until now, God's Spirit has protected mankind from self-destruction, but at some point, that protection will be removed and man's going to be left to his own devices. At some point, God's going to lift His hand. God's going to lift His Spirit and say, Now, the time is over. When men rebel against God, sooner or later, He gives them up to face the consequences of their own sinful choices. Hear me well, God won't protect us from ourselves forever. God may delay judgment, but judgment's going to come. Amen? I know we're living in a day where people want to, to mock and scoff at Christians, and we talk about the Lord coming, and they want to say, hey, hey, where's His coming at? God's delaying because He's giving people the chance to repent. He's giving people the chance to come to Him. But I'm telling you, there's coming a day that He's going to come back and His patience is going to be over. His patience is going to run out. And they'll no longer have opportunity. God's patience doesn't last forever. God didn't allow the human race to stay in their rebellious state forever. The rain began to fall eventually and the flood came eventually because God's patience, His Spirit didn't strive with man forever. You see, there is a point of no return in our rejection of God. God will not rule us forever. God will not draw man forever. There is a point where He will say no more. In fact, let me just say this. You've heard me say this before. If God draws you once, that's all He ever has to draw you. He doesn't have to come knocking again. He doesn't have to come convicting again. He doesn't have to come drawing again. All He has to do is give us one chance to say yes to Him. And after that, He doesn't have to do anything. Those who continue to reject God have no promise that God will draw them to Himself on some other day. That's why today is the day of salvation. That's why if God is drawing and calling men today, they need to say yes today because He may not come another day. There can come a day when the Holy Spirit may no longer draw a person. That's a sad place to be. To know that you can get to a place where you cross a line and can never go back and find repentance. You know, the Bible says Esau sought repentance and he couldn't find it. That's a bad place to be, folks. Trying to find repentance and can't find it. Trying to find God and can't find Him. Because here's the thing, you can't find God unless God comes looking for you first. The Bible says you can't come unless He first draws you. And if His Spirit's no longer striving with you and drawing you, guess what? That's a bad place to be. 
Because I can remember growing up in church and feeling the Holy Spirit drawing me as a child and feeling His convicting power drawing me as a child and getting into my teenage years and not feeling Him like I did as a child. I mean, He's been there before. That's why we have to do our best to reach our young men and women as early as we can. Because they may get to a place with no return. We see a third thing here in our text. We see a headlong rush into evil. Look at verse 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Nowhere else in the Bible will you find such a clear description of the doctrine of total depravity. This is the human race wholly apart from God's grace. You go back to Genesis 1 and you repeatedly find where God saw what He had made was good and He said in Genesis 1.31, I believe it was, it was very good. When you get to Genesis chapter 6, God looks at the earth and all He sees is a foul cesspool of evil. We see God knows what's happening in the world. He sees it. I'm afraid sometimes we think that God just kind of turns a blind eye to what's taking place in our world. Hear me well, God knows what's taking place in our world. He sees the evil. He sees the wickedness. And we might say, why doesn't God intervene? It's not time for Him to intervene. But I promise you, God knows what's going on. He saw the wickedness of man. And notice that it talks about every intent and thought of their heart was evil continually. Everything they did was corrupt. Everything they did was evil continually. Literally day and night, all they could do was evil. They could do no good, Brother Lynn. Man committed more and more sin, more and more acts of wickedness. Day after day, they only got more vile and more wicked and more evil. It wasn't getting better. It was getting worse and worse day after day after day. And I look at America and I look at our world in 2018 and it's waxing worse and worse and worse. It's nothing but days of debauchery in in the way we live today. It's getting worse and worse and worse. But great wickedness doesn't only mean that sin multiplied, it also means that sin became more extreme and terrible. Sin became more mean and vile. It was more immoral and perverse. It was more destructive and terrifying. It was more evil and devilish. It was more lustful and sensual. Sensual. Anything went, anything goes is how they lived. If it felt good, let's do it. Let's jump in head over heels. Let's go after it. With all that's within us, it was more obscene, more filthy and foul, more gross and heinous. People of that day could only practice evil. That's how far gone they were. No good in them. And the reality is, the truth is, there's no good in anyone. Psalm 14 verse 1 through 3 says, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. That's how they were living. They were living like there was no God, like God didn't exist. 
They are corrupt. They have committed abominable, abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside together. They have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. That's where we are apart from God's grace. That's where we are when we get away from God. You see, any good we may do is stained with the dirt of our own sinful inclinations. We have never done a truly good deed in and of ourselves, and we never will. Even our good deeds are but filthy rags in the sight of Almighty God. Think about that. I want you to hear what I'm about to say and hear me well. Don't read Genesis 6, 5 and say those people must have been terrible. You need to read Genesis 6, 5 and look in the mirror. Because there's no difference. That's the point of Romans 3.23. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. We've all sinned and missed the mark. There's no good in any of us. Paul said, O wretched man that I am. There's no good in any of us. If not for the grace of God, there go I. There's no difference between them and us. No difference between then and now. Our world today is just as wicked and corrupt as it was in the days of Noah. Drugs and alcohol and prostitution and murder and homosexuality and the list could go on and on. Morals and standards and boundaries are lacking in our society today just as it was in Noah's day. People today don't have self-control. People today don't exercise restraint. Anything goes. Genesis 6.11 tells us the earth was corrupt in the sight of God and the earth was filled with violence. Sounds like our day, doesn't it? Open your Bible. I didn't put this in your notes, but open your Bible. Look at verse 12 and 13. God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Verse 13, Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. Nothing but corruption, nothing but violence. That's our day, isn't it? Flip over real quick to Genesis 8.21. Just write this down in your notes. This is after the flood. Noah, he's in verse 20, built an altar, sacrificed an animal. The Lord smelled the soothing aroma, and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. And I will never again destroy every living thing as I've done. Listen, he's done sent the flood, but he knows that man's still wicked. That our motives, our purposes, our intent, it's still wicked. It's that way in Noah's day, it's that way in our day. But fourthly, we see this. We see a shocking judgment from heaven. Look at verse 6 and verse 7. The Lord was sorry that He made man on the earth and He was grieved in His heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky. 
for I am sorry that I have made them. Notice those phrases. The Lord was sorry. He was grieved in His heart. God's grieving over man's sin. But here's the thing. His grief is a sign of His love. See, the Lord's not a robot. He isn't some unfeeling God in heaven who set the world in motion and then sits back at a distance and lets men destroy themselves. His heart breaks over the sin that covers the earth. He grieves over what men and women do. He grieves over men's rebellion. He grieves over man's wickedness. Now here's the thing. God knew this was going to happen. He knew it was going to happen. He knew how everything was going to turn out, Brother Lynn. But it still affected him. He isn't unfeeling in the face of human sin and rebellion. It breaks his heart. And so God, He decides to uncreate, to uncreate the earth. He decides to send judgment. He's going to send a flood and wipe everything out. Now think about what that means. Whole cities destroyed. Homes washed away. Roads covered. Whole villages flooded. Men, women, children vanishing beneath the waves. The whole earth under the waters of judgment. Nothing like it happened before and nothing like it has happened since. Listen, it's not going to be a flood next time, but it's going to be fire. Judgment's coming again. But one final thing I want us to notice from the text. Noah found grace. Noah found grace. There's going to be people who find grace. Look at verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found favor. He found grace. You have a King James in the eyes of the Lord. This is the first mention of grace in the Bible. This isn't the first act of grace, but it's the first time grace is mentioned in the Bible. It means undeserved favor. It describes the blessing God gives to those who don't deserve it. So don't read this verse and think Noah was a really good man because he obeyed God and he earned God's grace. I know that the Bible says that he was perfect, he was upright, he was blameless, but here's the thing, Noah was a sinner just like everybody else. He needed grace. He needed grace. Noah didn't earn anything. Grace was given to him the same way it's given to everybody else. It was given to him just like it's given to us today. It was given freely. It was given as a gift. Hear me, either grace is a gift or it's not grace. It's given to you. You don't earn it. Amen? There's two truths we can take away from this verse. First of all, letter A. First, grace is available in the darkest hours. Even though the world was rushing headlong into judgment, Noah found grace. Hear me well. There is never a pit so deep that the love of God is not deeper still. Don't say, I'm too bad a sinner to ever be saved. Don't ever say that. Don't say, God can never forgive me. Yes, He can. And He will if you cry out to Him. Don't say, my husband, my wife, my kids are too far gone to be saved. They can be saved. Amen? Don't say, I'm going to stop praying for that person because they're a hopeless case. You don't know that. We're in the day of grace. The door's still open. You keep praying. Why? Because while there is life, there is hope. Amen? 
You never know what God may do. You never know who may who, who God may send somebody's way. You keep praying. You keep believing. You keep just trusting because the day of grace is still here. God hadn't shut the door yet. You keep believing. Nobody is too far gone. You never know what God may do. Leave the final judgment in the hands of the Lord. You keep believing and praying. It's a day of grace. But secondly, let her be... Grace is the only means of escape. Let me just say this. Grace is the only means of escape. Your good works isn't going to help you escape. Your good deeds aren't going to help you escape. If you get out, if you escape, it's going to be by the grace of God. Amen? Let me just ask this question. Was Noah somehow better than everybody else of that day? No. He was just a lost man like everybody else was. He needed God's grace. He needed favor. Just like, he needed God's help just like everybody else did. He had to walk with God and be faithful just as anybody else had to be faithful. One thing we've got to understand, anybody who's ever been saved in the Bible, it's been by the grace of God. Anybody, it's been by the grace of God. It's by grace through faith. Always. It's not how good we are. It's never been by how well we perform. It's never been by how many rules we can keep. It's always been by the grace of God. He trusted God. And God gave him what he didn't deserve. Is that making sense to you? He trusted God. He was obedient. And here's the thing, as he preached, anybody else, if they would have trusted God, had they believed in God, they would have found grace.